All right, let's take out our Bibles once again and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is on page 1200 in the Bibles we provide here. As we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Roman church. And this morning specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13. I know that seems like a big chunk for me to get through in one sermon, but I will be able to do it. You doubt me. You doubt my abilities to do this. I suppose you have good reason to do that. All right. Let's read verses 5 through 13. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now let's just pray and ask God to bless this passage for us. Father, we now come to the part of our worship which is called preaching and teaching and exhortation. We know this is important because you emphasize it in your word. We know that historically you have used the minutes of a preaching time of a sermon to bring people to faith in Christ and to change lives to empower people for service, to call them to new service to you. You work through these moments in really marvelous ways. So I'm praying that now you would help me, that you would gift me by your spirit to do what has fallen to me to do. And that is expound these verses in a way that everybody can understand and grow through I know that I cannot do that unless you help me 
unless you gift me. And I pray that you would give everyone in this room the ability to understand at a spiritual level these words and how it applies to them. And I pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So just remember now, uh, for those of you who have not been a part of these messages, I'm sorry because you're jumping right into the middle here and you'd have to go back and listen to see where we've been, but we have fallen now to verse five in chapter seven. You remember the first five chapters of Romans is primarily about justification. The fact that we are declared righteous by God, not by our own works or the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. You are saved by works, it's just not your own. That's the point. It was the work of another, Jesus Christ. And faith is you coming to him and trusting in what he has done and in nothing you have done. You see, you're putting all your faith and trust in what he has done for you. But then in chapters 6 through 8, he's changing topics somewhat, but remember it is a progression and a continuation. It goes from justification to what we call sanctification. A very fancy word for the word holiness, being set apart from sin unto God. It's very important to understand that justification does not eliminate the necessity of sanctification. Being justified doesn't mean that we just live in sin or live as lawless people. No, we are justified in order to be sanctified. It's a progression that we go into this idea that as justified people now, we are to live righteously and we are to grow in our holiness. Do you know that you are to be a holy person? That holiness is not some aspect of Christianity that is optional, that you decide if you want or not. It comes part and parcel with the whole gift of salvation that God provides for us. We are to be a holy people. And so the question about the law comes in here. The question about the relationship between the law and our holiness, because the problem is, is that the The Jewish people, by the time Paul came around, had a misconception about what the law was for. They thought the law had the power to justify them and sanctify them. The problem is, is that the history of Israel proves that that's not the case, doesn't it? Because they had the law... And they proved to be more and more unholy as time went on. What's the problem? You ever wondered that? You ever read through your Old Testament and saw how much law they had? How many commandments? How much instruction? How much scripture? And they didn't get more holy. So what's the problem? That's what Paul's trying to explain in Romans chapter 7. The law doesn't have the power to save you. It can only condemn you. The law cannot justify you. The law cannot give you life. The law cannot progress you in holiness. Paul's trying to explain to the believer the good news that you are now released from the law so that you can belong to Christ. 
And in those first four verses, remember, that's what he talked about. The idea, he gives the illustration of a married person. They're bound to that marriage relationship until someone dies and then the widow or widower is free to belong to another. Well, what he's saying is, you've died to the law now through the body of Christ on the cross so that you can belong to another, to Christ. Belonging to the law brings only condemnation and death and it will not bring holiness Paul's going to explain why in the verses we just read, but I'm summarizing here. It could only bring condemnation and death and more unholiness. But belonging to Christ, look at verse 4, means that, the end of it, we can bear fruit now for God. That's the good news. You're released from the law because when you were bound to the law, you'd only bring forth fruit unto death. But now you belong to Jesus. And through that relationship now, you can bear fruit unto God. So the way of holiness then is through Jesus Christ and your relationship to Him. Christ died so that we could be a holy people. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 26 makes this clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, you see. That he might make her holy, have a holy bride that's married to him and producing this fruit through this covenant married relationship with Jesus Christ. Holiness is part of the Christian life and it must be a priority for us, but we must achieve it in the right way and that is through our connection, our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's based upon relationship. You see, the law can tell you what a holy person should do and should not do. The law can define holiness, but the law cannot provide holiness. That takes Jesus Christ to do that. And that's what he begins to explain in verse 5. Let's look at that verse, and I just want to break it up phrase by phrase. Notice verse 5 begins with the word for. I took the time this morning just to kind of peruse chapter 7, just chapter 7, looking for the word for. It's over and over throughout this whole passage. The word for is there because it's building on what he just said. He's going to elaborate on what he just said. Paul is very much like that. His teaching is like a a chain with different links that connect together and just keep going. And he'll say something, he'll say for or because, and then he elaborates on that and explains what he means. He keeps doing that throughout. And so the four here means he's explaining, he's jumping off of verse four and why it is that we needed to die to the law through the body of Christ, why it is that we need to belong to Jesus in order to bear fruit. Why could the nation of Israel not bear fruit for God over the course of a millennia with the possession of the law? Why could they not bear fruit for God? That's what Paul's about to explain, why it doesn't work. For, he says, while we were living in the flesh. Let's pause right there. While we were living in the flesh. Paul incorporates himself in this. Of course, we have we. While we were living in the flesh. When was that and what is that to live in the flesh? What is Paul talking about here in verse 5? Well, the word flesh 
can often have reference just to the physical aspect of a person. We use that terminology. I'm in flesh and blood, right? Just our physicality, so to speak. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. When was a time when any human being was ever not living in the flesh? So that doesn't make much sense. Other times when he talks about flesh, he could be talking about the sinful aspect of our humanity. We talk about that all the time. We say, man, I just have so much flesh in me. By that we mean we fail, we sin, we don't respond the way we should. I don't think that's necessarily what he's talking about here either. What he's referring to here is while we were living in the flesh was our pre-Jesus time and we didn't have Jesus and therefore we didn't have the Spirit. While we were living in the flesh, we didn't have Jesus and therefore we didn't have the Spirit. Look at verse 6 because the Spirit shows up in verse 6. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way, here it is, of the Spirit. Capital S or should be in your translation. Not talking about your inner disposition or that immaterial part of you, but clearly referring to, friends, the Holy Spirit of God, you see. Remember what we read earlier? Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born by the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus, you law-keeping Jew here trying to use the law as a means to be right with God and stay right with God, you have to understand that you're missing a vital ingredient here. You don't have me, first of all, therefore you don't have the Spirit of God and the new birth He brings, and therefore the law is only going to bring, right, condemnation and death for you. You think it's the way of life, Nicodemus. You think by keeping the law, you're going right into the kingdom. And Nicodemus, you can't see or enter the kingdom unless you're born again by the Spirit of God, because that which is flesh is of the flesh, and that which is of the Spirit is of the Spirit, you see. Nicodemus was living in the flesh. Just like the Apostle Paul before he was saved in Acts chapter 9 was living in the flesh. These were people who were void of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the problem. As a matter of fact, let me give you a little preview, a little sneak peek of Romans chapter 8. Look over at Romans chapter 8 in verse 5. Romans chapter 8 is all about the Spirit now. Paul mentions the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6, and then goes on to some other things about the law and sin. And then chapter 8, he returns to that one verse and he expounds on it for the first 13 verses. So if you mark in your Bibles, you could look at chapter 7, you could look at verse 6, and you could put next to it Romans 8, 1 through 13. He's coming back to this, okay? But listen to these verses, beginning verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. This is the problem. While we were in the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh, which is what you do if you're in the flesh because you don't have the Holy Spirit, that's death. 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. By the way, Christian, let me just pause here. If you are a Christian and you are struggling with peace and your heart is always in turmoil and maybe you're always anxious or afraid or depressed or whatever it may be, might I suggest that it's you're not setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Because Paul says here, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So it's like you're, you're a Christian, but you're thinking like a non-Christian, and you're basically living in the flesh in that way, and setting your mind on the things of this world and the things of this earth and your cares and concerns or maybe even sinful things. So largely what we'll find in Romans chapter 8 is that this walk in the spirit is in, it's connected to your mind, to the way you think moment by moment in your life. Getting control of this is really helpful Setting your mind on things of the Spirit. But anyway, look at verse 7 again. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, now listen to this, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, friends, it cannot. There's the problem right there with a person who is living in the flesh. That is, they don't have the Holy Spirit of God because they don't have Christ. The problem is their mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So you see the problem? If you don't have the, what Paul's explaining is if you don't have the spirit, the law's a real problem for you, even if you're trying to keep it. Because your mind, you don't have the spirit, so you're actually, you're not indifferent to God, you're actually hostile to him. There is animosity from you to him. You don't like his law, you don't keep his law, you don't even have the power to keep his law. That's the problem. That's why the law cannot save you. And the law cannot change you. It's why the law can only condemn you. And the way of the law is not the way to life. It is the way to death. This is exactly what Paul's saying. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you are a law-abiding Pharisee who tries your best and you're living your moral best life now, or if you are living in the depths of debauchery. It doesn't matter on the spectrum where you're at. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're in hostility towards God. You cannot keep His law. And therefore, it can never be for you the path to life. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, important to know, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. This is exactly what he's talking about. You're not living in the flesh. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see how that goes? You need Christ and you need the Spirit. And when you have Christ, you have the Spirit. No Christ, no Spirit. Okay? No Spirit, no Christ. 
one God to you in saving grace, the Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? But if you don't have the Spirit, the law is nothing but a problem for you. That's why I called it a toxic relationship last week. Notice what he says here. Now go back to chapter 7, verse 5. Now we know what it means. We're living in the flesh. We don't have the Spirit of God. While we were living in the flesh, listen to the statement, our sinful passions or our sinful desires aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Listen to what he's saying again. While you were living in the flesh and you had the law, the law actually aroused within you your sinful desires. They were actually evoked. Have you ever, have you had any experience with toddlers? Those of you who have had experience with toddlers, you're going to get this immediately. You can bring a toddler into a room and you say, you can play with all these toys. Look at all these toys. I brought out every toy you've got. Here they are. Play with them as much as you want. But I don't want you to touch this toy. What's the toddler going to want to do? He wants that toy. He doesn't want to be told. He can't have that toy, even though he can have all these toys. It's because by his very nature, friends, he's a rebel. And the law, the sin that he has or she has, is actually aroused by law. That's the problem. You see, not only can the law not save you, it actually exasperates the problem. This is why, again, with the nation of Israel, they get the law. They don't get better. They get worse. They're receiving the law at Sinai that said, hey, don't make any idols or worship them. The very first thing they do as a people is make the golden calf and worship it. The law actually arouses within us sinful desires because, friends, by our nature, don't you see what he's teaching? The problem isn't the law. The problem is that we're rebellious and we don't like the law and we don't like God's law. We're at enmity with God. We will not submit to him and we cannot submit to him. That's why the law cannot save you, friends. That's why no religion that's based upon works or law-keeping has any ability to save you. How eternally disappointed will people be when they come to the end to find out all of their good works in an effort to get into heaven or to get God pleased with them were for naught. All it did is exasperate their problem. Friends, sin is rebellion and we are sinners which means we're rebellious, which means we do not like law. Remember Psalm 2 last week, verses 1 through 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Listen, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. This is why we see 
the increasing depravity in a nation like the United States, not an increasing morality, an increasing depravity in a nation that has the law of God. I think verse 5 explains it. Sinful passions within the people of our nation that are void of the Holy Spirit are actually aroused by God's law. They, they actually then say, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm not going to do what you say, God, and it just increases. This is why Romans 1 shows that progression in every society from the knowledge of God all the way into the depths of depravity. Law cannot save. This is why I said last week that the relationship between sinners and the law is a toxic one. Not that the law is toxic, but because we are toxic and we are rebels. Now Paul knows this kind of talk in verse 5 is going to raise questions. So I want you to skip verse 6 just for a minute and look at verse 7. Here's the question. What then shall we say? Chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? In other words, if the law actually gets sinners to sin, is the law sin? That's the question. It's a valid one. It's the problem in the law. What does Paul say? By no means. And then he answers it this way. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. In other words, the law defines sin. That's one of its uses. That's one of its beautiful features is it shows us what is right and what is wrong. And remember we taught the law of God stands. The moral law of God is still right now and what he said is wrong now. No generation has the ability to define for themselves what is right and wrong. God has already done that for all time. We wouldn't even know what sin was if the law didn't teach us what sin was. That's what he's saying. So then what's the problem? And then in verses 8 through 11, Paul's explaining that. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, commentators debate, when is Paul talking about? When was he alive apart from the law? When did this happen? What is he referring to here? But I think what Paul is describing is in his pre-Jesus days, trying to follow the law, thinking the law promises life to those who obey it and keep it. And it is absolutely true. If a person keeps the law of God spotless from birth on and complete and obeys it both internally and externally in every point, then yes, it's life. But no one's been able to do that except one. And it wasn't Paul. It's Jesus. So I think what Paul is describing is that time when he was alive because of his law keeping. And then this one pesky command came out. Thou shalt not covet. And what Paul found is that his sin seized the opportunity And within him, 
out of his control, in much to his chagrin, I'm sure, produced in him all kinds of covetousness. The law came in, he said, and I died. The law that promised life to me had now become to me death. You know, friends, you need to come to the conclusion in your life at a point in time where the law condemns you. I think largely what Paul could be referring to here is what Jesus referred to, at least in part, by the time when the Spirit would come and he would convict the world of sin. He'd convince them of it. He'd show them the futility of their trying to keep the law because they cannot. It would actually expose and reveal how bad they are. See, the the law just doesn't define sin. The purpose of the law is not just to define sin. It's to convince you of how sinful you are. It's what the Spirit uses to convince people, I'm doomed. I'm cursed because I can't keep this. I have within me all kinds of sin, says Paul. It shows us what sin is. The law shows us our inability to keep it. And as a matter of fact, look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order, listen, that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, one truth that we need to grab onto is no matter how bad you think you are, you're even worse than that. (laughs) The law exposes your sin and inability. It exposes your depravity. It's crushing. This is why it's so good, such good news that Paul says, now, through the death of Christ, you're released from the law. You have died to the law through the body of Christ, the one who embodied Torah and lived it completely and then went to the cross and died for all of your rebellion and your sin and your your law breaking and your transgressions. He died there on the cross for it. Now you're dead to the law. You're released from that and you belong to him now. See, you've been released from the law. Friends, feel the relief of that. And this is why the law without the Holy Spirit kills. The law apart from the Holy Spirit condemns. Far from being a path of life, it only exposes and amplifies sin and so the law produces death and leads to condemnation. And you know what it does? It leaves us looking for a savior. In one way, you can read your entire Old Testament this way. That was the age of the law showing and revealing sin and preparing people's hearts to where they should be. I need a savior for my sin and it ain't the law. I need a righteousness that is apart from law. It's apart from my works completely. I need an alien righteousness as the reformers called it. A righteousness outside of me. And I need a new heart 
because my heart's a problem and my heart's at animosity with God and will not submit to his law. I just need grace and salvation. Enter in now the good news of Jesus. This is what God provides for Jesus. The whole kit and caboodle of salvation from beginning to end provided in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 now. We'll land the plane in this verse. Look at this. But now we are released from the law. Those words but now are very important in the Bible just like the word for is because he's saying things are different now, Christian. You're not under that condemning weight and power of the law anymore or left trying to gain your right standing before God by the law or left trying to be holy by the law. You're released from that now. Now things are different. He says, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve now. We're serving still. Oh, we are a serving people. We serve the Lord, but we do it in this way. Listen, in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Remember Moses comes down the mountain with the law which is good and right and holy, but it was written on tablets of stone. And the people who tried to follow it, who vowed to God they would follow it, found that they could not. They were void of the power source to keep it, so it actually enticed them to sin, and their sinful passions were aroused by the law, and throughout all those centuries they bore fruit unto death. But now God has brought in a new era and a new covenant, one he promised. If you read through those prophets, there's promises of a new time coming when God is going to do what is necessary to save his people from their sins. Promises like this, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, he says, I'll give you a new heart. What do we need, friends? What's the law show us we need? We need a new heart. God says, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new disposition I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what Paul's talking about. Serving in the new way of the spirit. We're here. We've arrived. We're in it. You know things in particular some of the Jewish people and the prophets long to look into. They would have loved to seen the age in which you live. Or promises like this, behold the days are coming, Jeremiah 31, behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, when the Spirit changes you, friends, it goes from this external writing of maybe what the Bible says or what the law says and you trying to keep it. And all of a sudden he takes it and he puts it in your heart now on that new heart he gave you. The new heart that isn't 
at animosity with him. It actually delights in him and wants to serve him, actually enjoys serving him, and actually doesn't see service to God in his or her whole life as a burden. It's a great joy now because of this new heart. That means all of our religion, all of our Christianity, all of our worship, all of our evangelism, all of our service comes from within, from a work that God has done there, you see, empowered by his spirit, and we live out then his law almost naturally. You know what? The law is good, and we use the law, and it is right, and it is true, and we read and study the law, but did you know a righteous person doesn't need the law? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, The law was not set down for a righteous person. Righteous people, well, they just just follow Torah from the heart, you see. God has done a work within us in that we from our hearts now are transformed so that everything is different to us. I love the doctrine of the new birth. Every chance I get when I come across a passage that even hints at it, I'm going to drive that part home because I'm convinced that there are many people, many Christians, professing Christians that have never experienced the new birth. They've experienced Christianity. They got their fair share of that. They know the rules. They know what to do. But their hearts are left unchanged. And I don't want that to be anyone in this room. So let me just ask you this question. And when I ask you a question, just think about it and answer it in your mind. Has there been a but now in your life? Was there a time where there was pre-Jesus and no spirit and now there is, I have Jesus and I have his spirit. Has that happened to you? Remember we read in John chapter three, if you're sitting here in this room and you're like, I don't know, okay? Now listen, when we read in John chapter three earlier and Jesus is talking and he says, you need to be born again. But he doesn't tell Nicodemus or anyone else to look to the spirit for that. As a matter of fact, he says, look at the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the wilderness just like that, uh, that snake that Moses had to lift up and they all had to look to the snake. He says, look to me now. Whoever believes in me receives this new life that I'm talking about. So if you don't know, look to Jesus now. Paul will go on in Romans chapter 7 and say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call upon his name. Look to Jesus. Say, forgive me. Provide for me the salvation that Pastor Jess is talking about so I can know this, so I can know what it is to be born again and to be in this relationship with the triune God. And friends, for those of you who are in here and you say, I know I have a new heart. I know I have the spirit in me. I know there was a but now. But I still struggle with sin and sinful desires. I still fail. To you, I say, friends, come back next week because that's the rest of chapter seven. (laughs) Let's pray.
Father, do your work by your spirit through your son that only you can do. Be gracious to everyone in this room and those listening online. Only you can save. Only you can change the heart. And we pray that at Calvary we would just have the privilege, the real privilege of seeing that happen with people young and old. If there are people in here, God, that are older folks and Christianized but don't have Christ, please save them. All the way down to the children and the youth. God, they need your saving grace, transforming power. Lord, in the weakest cry, in the heart in this room, the weakest cry that is just right now just saying to you, Jesus, save me. Hear from heaven and save and deliver and change. We ask this in your glorious name. Amen.